Welcome to the Everyday Sublime Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. In today's episode, I'll be releasing the first formal solo cast under the new podcast direction. In the past, I've done some solo reflections here or there, but I'm excited to officially launch into the new podcast rhythm, which, if you're just joining me, is to release two podcast episodes a month. The idea here is the first episode will be a long-form interview with a relevant expert. Last episode's conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer focused on his work as a scientist looking at the intersections of neuroscience, mindfulness, and addiction. If you enjoy the theme of today's solo cast, I encourage you to check out that interview with Dr. Judd. But as I launch these solo casts, i.e. these reflective monologues from me, I want to suggest how you might consider engaging with them. It's my intention that the solo cast episodes will function in a variety of ways. The solo cast will attempt to distill some of the key information that my guests shared during the long-form interview. But also, I hope to offer a few ways in which these takeaways might apply to your practice of yin yoga or meditation. To that end, you may enjoy listening to these solo cast episodes while you actually do your yin yoga practice. Or you might treat them like a bit like a guided meditation, so you could listen to them while you're meditating. I'm thinking of these episodes like loosely structured Dharma talks, and so I encourage you to be creative with how you integrate them within your own practice. Now before jumping into today's theme, as a bit of housekeeping, I want to just thank everyone for their support in engaging with the podcast and with our online courses. At the start of the pandemic, I made the decision to steeply discount the four introductory online courses to our four core teacher training modules that we have in the school. These four courses are what we call the Sublime Quartet, cover the core elements of yin yoga, yin meditation, traditional Chinese medicine, and yang yoga. We now offer these courses as a package for a fee of $149, and I want to thank anyone who has made that purchase. And I just want to say that not only have you helped support me during this precarious time, which I'm incredibly grateful for, but also just know that in purchasing these courses, that is in paying the fee for them, you also made it possible for me to give these courses free of charge to anyone unable to access the courses due to financial hardship. This fee structure has been enormously gratifying in so many ways. But very simply, those that are able to, they pay. And in doing so, they both support me and all those that can't afford to pay the fee right now. To me, this just feels like a very harmonious relationship, and I'm grateful to all of you for your support in this. That said, if you want these courses, or if you'd like access to any of these courses, but have felt reluctant to send us an email and ask for free access, please don't hesitate. You should know that our ratio of giving away the courses for free to selling the courses for a fee is about 15 to 1. That is, for every 15 quartets we give away, we sell one. Now, those numbers might sound like a crazy business strategy, but it's working. And if you are interested, please don't hesitate to reach out. There's a link for this bundle in the show notes called the Sublime Quartet. And if finances are tight, just send us an email and we'll be happy to unlock free access to you without question. Now, in addition to these on-demand courses, 
Terry and I have also produced an online on-demand version of the Foundations module. And this course covers all of the physical aspects of teaching yin yoga. I'm really happy about this course too, because this is a full 50-hour module that's on-demand. Now to my mind, this is, in some ways, actually a better educational opportunity than if it were a live training, simply for the fact that a student can go back and re-listen or re-watch any of the lectures or practices whenever they wish. Additionally, Terry and I will also start hosting webinars soon to field questions related to the online coursework. But for now, if you're looking for a yin training, please consider our 50-hour online on-demand foundations teacher training. It covers, well, it covers everything you need to know about postures, anatomical variations, principles of functional alignment, fascia, how yin yoga impacts the fascia, sequencing, and much more. Now, additionally, all our other modules are presently being held online, live, via Zoom. That, that covers the traditional Chinese medicine module, the mindfulness module, and the yang yoga module. These are all being held this summer and fall over Zoom live. So if you're interested in bringing any of those themes into your practice and teaching, there's a link in the show notes with our calendar, and we invite you to join us. Perhaps most surprising to me is the fact that uh, two weeks ago, Terry and I taught our first six-day meditation and yin yoga retreat online. This went better than any of us could have expected, and it's encouraged us to continue moving forward with this offering. So our next retreat will be in early December of this year, 2020. And for anyone that's been interested in experiencing a meditation retreat, but feel more comfortable doing so from your own home, this is all now possible. And by the feedback, the retreat in place, as we're calling it, the retreat in place seems to offer the same impactful transformational experience as a live retreat. And we're just delighted about that. So keep that in mind if you're interested in diving deep into a meditation retreat experience. So that's all to say, we are committed to supporting you and your practice in any way we can. And lastly, I'll just add here that beginning next month, Terry and I will also be adding weekly yin, yang classes and a weekly dharma talk slash meditation with me. These will all be part of our regular weekly offerings. So hopefully we'll have a little more time to connect with you. Okay, I think that's a wrap on my end of housekeeping. If you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email at uh, info at yinyogaschool.com. You can send us a question for the podcast, suggest a guest for the podcast, any interaction. We love to hear from you. Um, but now I bring you, as strange as it sounds, doesn't it? But I now bring you me reflecting on my conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. Okay, so in reflecting on my recent conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer, I want to offer some applicable takeaways that hopefully you'll be able to apply to your yin yoga or meditation practice and teaching. So as I see it, at the heart of Dr. Judd's work are key applications from a model of human behavior that's called reward-based learning. Essentially, in a reward-based learning model, our brain learns adaptive behaviors based on the rewards that those behaviors generate. And in this model, 
there are really three components or three key components that need to be understood or conceptually grasped. They are one, the trigger. There's a thing in the environment that's causing distress or agitation or discomfort. Then there's two, the behavior, and usually the behavior is, has some strategy of getting away or getting you out of that discomfort. And then three, the reward. That is the, the, <clears throat> the positive effect of acting upon that behavior. So if we consider each of these a little more depth, the trigger can really be anything in the external or internal environment that's difficult to tolerate or that's challenging to be with. Here, I can't help but think of how the Buddha used the term dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. Dukkha is the Pali word translated as suffering or discontent. But the word dukkha literally implies that which is difficult to bear, or that which is difficult to be with. It's those aspects of life that are hard to be with. Sickness is dukkha, for example. It's hard to be with sickness, with the experience of sickness or illness. Aging is dukkha. It's simply hard to bear the experience of the, of the inevitable decay of the body throughout the aging process. Death itself is dukkha. It's incredibly hard to bear the experience of losing a loved one. It's also hard to bear the company of unpleasant people at times, and hard to bear the separation when we're separated from those we love. This is what the term dukkha is addressing. It's referring or pointing to the entire spectrum of human experience that make the human condition difficult to be with or to bear. So triggers in life, whether they come from a challenging neighbor, the news cycle, or from our own brain in the form of agitation or anxiety, all these triggers propel us to try to get away from the patch of unpleasantness that we happen to find ourselves sitting in. And this is where the second aspect of the reward-based learning model comes in. This is where the behavior, capital B, the behavior in response to the trigger comes in. Often with strong triggers, there will be an almost compulsive drive to engage in any variety of behavioral change to take the edge off or to take you out of the uncomfortable situation. I'm sure you can think of many of these kinds of behaviors. But, for example, smoking or drinking something, eating, texting, tuning into the news, surfing the web, aimlessly scrolling through social media, any of these behaviors could function in a way to create distance between you and the discomfort of the trigger. Now, and that's where the reward comes in. Any relief one gets from the trigger is experienced as a short-term gain. So numbing out with a substance or stimulating oneself with a distraction this in itself is rewarding, the reward of no longer having to feel the trigger. And with the reward, depending on the intensity of its relief that it brings, the brain will produce a very strong release of dopamine, which effectively reinforces within our brain the very associations between the trigger, the subsequent behavior, and the ultimate reward thereby increasing the very likelihood of repeating this entire cycle the next time we are so fortunate or unfortunate enough to encounter a similar trigger. This whole cycle wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the fact that many of the behaviors we impulsively reach for carry with them harmful consequences, or you could say they carry with them negative karma. Dr. Judd often cites a very simple definition of what addiction is. 
he defines it as continued use despite adverse consequences. That's continued use despite adverse consequences, meaning in spite of having bad results, you keep using the thing or doing the thing. So numbing oneself with alcohol might, in the short term, alleviate the pain of the trigger, but of course continued use despite poor sleep, increased irritability, more conflictual relationships, uh, decline in, a decline in general health, this is where we start to see the claws of the addiction beginning to sink in. Now, what I find really cool about Dr. Judd's work here with addiction is that it de-emphasizes direct behavioral change. In other words, he's not trying to get the addict to immediately stop the addictive behavior. He doesn't tell smokers to stop smoking. He doesn't tell drinkers to stop drinking. He doesn't tell gadget addicts to stop texting or thinking addicts to stop thinking even. Instead, Dr. Judd's approach to treating any addiction revolves around asking the person to simply pay close attention to the experience of the trigger itself, as well as to any desire to fulfill the cravings that the trigger tends to generate. And what his research found was that a person's behavior naturally starts to improve on its own. But this happens when someone is able to really closely observe the limitations of the strategy for happiness that the addiction was trying to sell in the first place. In other words, when smokers were taught to simply pay closer attention to the behavior of what smoking actually was like, that is, inhaling a very, very unsavory taste of chemicals, shite in your mouth, their consumption of cigarettes spontaneously began to taper on its own. In a sense, by bringing close attention, that is awareness or mindfulness, to the whole cycle, the cycle began to shift out of a cycle that brought more adverse consequences to a cycle of behavior that led to more positive outcomes. And as many meditation enthusiasts have said for a while now, we can see here how awareness itself is curative. Again, awareness itself is curative. And what I love most about this model of reward-based learning is that we can really start to see it for ourselves in terms of how it functions in our own practice. So in considering a way to bring this whole theme into one's practice, I want to make a few suggestions here. And the first suggestion is simply that over the next few days, or over a period of days or a week maybe, I encourage you to try to take an inventory of the things that challenge you within your practice. I'm not talking about general life triggers. I'm just talking about things you notice while you're doing a practice, whether it's in, while you're in a pose, while you're doing your seated meditation practice. Try to identify and take inventory of at least three to five triggers, that things that are unique to your own experience that make the practice a little bit more challenging or a little bit more difficult to be with. To give you an example, I personally noticed that soon after the pandemic started, or as the pandemic began, really began to surge, I noticed in my own experience an uptick in my own restlessness during practice. Whether it was during, during a seated meditation or in my yin yoga practice, time literally felt like it was crawling again, as though I was a virgin to practice all over. 30 minutes of seated meditation with pre-pandemic was normally a breeze, but during the pandemic, it really started to feel like an endless two to four hour session of meditation. 
And in my yin practice, I also experienced an increase in those squirmy, crawly, agitated vibes, energy dynamics that I haven't really noticed in almost two decades. So I found it interesting and helpful here to apply Dr. Judd's approach to these triggers in my practice. So the first thing then, again, is simply to gather an inventory of your own, or on your own, of some of the triggers that you notice arising in your mind during practice. They might be like mine, states of agitation and restlessness, or states of fear and anxiety, or states of boredom and disinterest, or really anything you identify as difficult to be with. What is your personal flavor or experience of dukkha? Once you have a short list of your usual suspects of triggers, I recommend working with one of these over the course of the week or of the next week or two. So only take one. Don't work with the whole list. Just pick one of the list. Leave the others aside for the moment and just home in on the one, intending to bring close attention to how it manifests within your formal practice. All too often, I find when people meditate, I hear them or hear in their reports, I hear them somehow trying to get away from difficulties. I hear them trying to wriggle out from the under, from being under the belly of dukkha. But if we listen to Dr. Judd and if we listen to the Buddha, they seem to be saying, hang on here. Let's pay close attention to this dukkha as it is right now. Let's take a calm, close examination of this dukkha's experience. So that's really the next suggestion. While practicing, I encourage you to hold a gentle intention to be a little bit more curious, a bit more tolerant, or even a bit more interested in the specific trigger that you've identified. In my case, I encourage myself, gently, to take a closer look at the experience of restlessness. I could feel the squirmy, unsettled energy in my body. I could sense the desire to move, to check my phone, to get up and get a cup of coffee, to go online, to go walk my dog, to really do anything else but to sit with a squirmy, agitated restlessness. And in this way, this kind of exploration takes us slowly below the surface of the manifestation of the trigger and connects us more deeply with the energetic feeling that is propelling us away or out of the trigger. Now, the Buddha referred to this energy, I think, as a kind of craving or thirst. The Pali word that is used for this craving is called tana. Tana literally is translated as thirst or a kind of craving for something. And the key thing to bear in mind about tana or craving, at least this is uh, a teaching that I found enormously helpful on this, on this topic, but the key thing to bear in mind here is that it isn't the craving itself that is the problem. The desire to move, the, de the desire to check email, the desire for another cup of coffee, the desires in and of themselves are not the problems. The desires are simply conditions in the mind that arise and cease. What makes these desires problematic is when our sense of happiness, and this is the key point, what makes the desires problematic is that when our sense of happiness and well-being becomes dependent on fulfilling the desires, that's the moment we get hooked. Another way of saying this is that our strategies, our normal strategies for peace, happiness, and well-being, these strategies get tied up in conditional terms. By this I mean... If we get X, 
then we will feel Y. That's a conditional sentence. If X, then Y. For example, if I stop meditating right now, then I'll feel more relaxed. If X, then Y. If I check my email, then I won't feel so agitated. If X, then Y. This is a very conventional and common strategy for happiness and well-being. If you're not happy, contented, peaceful, fulfilled, then simply get more of this or get rid of more of that. And if you're not happy, do something in the form of getting something else or getting rid of something that's here that's bothering you. This is the root, after all, of the advertiser's business strategy. Manufacture a perception of lack and then fill the void of that lack with product here. But, as Dr. Judd mentioned in our conversation, there's a passage in the Buddha's suttas, that is his early teachings, where the Buddha says something like this, quote, Only when I followed gratification to its end did knowledge and vision arise. Only when I followed gratification to its end did knowledge and vision arise. Now that's kind of a, a, a dense, uh, almost opaque statement. And I'd like to try to unpack this a bit to help give a sense of what the Buddha might be pointing to. I can't be 100% certain, but I'll offer some reflections here to consider. My sense of this passage is this. It's not so much about following the act of gratification to its end, meaning, say, you have a desire for a cup of coffee. It's not so much about, in my opinion, watching you follow the gratification of actually getting and consuming that cup of coffee to its end, although I think that works here. But I think it's much more about watching the experience of seeking gratification, the process of trying to gratify as it, as it sort of manifests as energy in, in your body and mind, it's seeing that seeking of gratification itself cease or come to an end. Now, you can certainly do both, and I don't want to be overly complicate things here, but likely the way this will appear in your actual practice, simply by virtue of the fact that you will be either in a seated meditation or in a yin yoga practice where you're not moving very much, you won't have the opportunity to actually gratify a desire. So while with the constraints of whatever practice you're doing, there won't be the opportunity to fulfill a gratification and follow the gratification to its end, if you follow what I'm saying. But you will have the opportunity in practice to observe the energy of seeking gratification. That is, you'll be able to see the energy itself of seeking gratification come to its end. So to put this in context, let's say, for example, let's say you're in a yin yoga pose like sleeping swan. Your outer hip is steeping in yin-appropriate sensation, a dull, moderate, mild ache. But your mind is searching for the exits. Your brain might be pumping out any of these kinds of thoughts. It's time, it's got to be five minutes already, right? Is that watch timer broken? Did I actually, hang on, did I, did I actually start the timer? You know, there, there have been many instances where I've been in a pose only thinking I've started the timer only to realize I haven't started the timer and then I kept me in the pose much longer than I meant to be and that kind of created this energetic imbalance. Okay, so it's worth checking. It really is worth checking the... F well, hang on. I know I already checked the timer, but it, would it hurt to check it again? Hmm. I wonder if there's a better pose, actually, than Sleeping Swan to get into this target area of the outer hip. 
There's other poses. I learned other poses in training. I think someone actually said two minutes was the minimum amount of time to start to receive the yin benefits on the fascia. We've got to be at that point by now. No harm shifting, is there? Etc., etc. So in your practice, when a dynamic such as that one arises, set the intention to observe its manifestation as closely as you can. You might find it helpful to notice it as a pattern of sensation and energy first in your body. But please also allow into your awareness the various thoughts, feelings, and ideas that the energy of dukkha generates. Once you identify the trigger, then try next to identify the conditional strategy hatched in your mind. The conditional view that says, if I get X, or if I get rid of X, then I'll be Y, whatever Y might be. If I just move, if I just scratch, then I'll be calm, then I'll be peaceful, then I'll be happy. So stay as close as you can to the feeling of this conditional statement or strategy. This isn't slowly a cognitive exercise here, nor is it solely a somatic exercise of feeling only the body. This is more of a holistic approach to feel the full expression of tana, that is craving, as it manifests in your being in the specific conditions of your practice. At some point, the tana will fade. And this is a very important moment or experience to observe when the tana itself, that's the energy of seeking fulfillment or gratification, seeing when or feeling when that energy fades. As Dr. Judd describes in his book, The Craving Mind, the tana will behave a bit like a wave. It will arise, it will crest, and it will fade. The key point in this practice, however, is to observe as much of the cycle of arising, cresting, and fading as possible so that we're present enough to appreciate the experience its fading brings us to. The Tibetan teacher Pima Chodron put it like this. She says, When we scratch the wound, we give in to our addictions. We do not allow the wound to heal. But when we instead experience the raw quality of the itch or pain of the wound and do not scratch it, we actually allow the wound to heal. So not giving in to our addictions is about healing at a very basic level. End quote. Now in our sitting or in our yin yoga practice, not scratching, not giving in to the craving, but simply observing it until it fades, this allows us to heal in that we grow, we literally start to grow or evolve out of a strategy that seeks happiness in very limited ways that's seeking pleasant sights, sounds, feelings, sensations, etc. And we start to taste a happiness. We start to taste a well-being that is intrinsic to our being when we aren't hooked by the seductive messaging of craving or tana. The American monk Ajahn Sumedho put it like this. He said, When you try to get rid of fear or anger, what happens? You just get restless or discouraged and have to go eat something or smoke or drink or do something else. But if you wait and endure restlessness, greed, hatred, doubt, despair, and sleepiness, if you observe these conditions as they cease and end, you will attain a kind of calm and mental clarity which you never achieve if you're always going after something else. This is the virtue of meditation, he says. 
if you sit, if you're willing to sit and patiently endure, you find your mind going into a very calm state. Now that calm occurs because there's no more trying to become something or trying to get rid of something. There's a kind of inner peace or relaxation of the mind in which you stop following the struggle to become or to have sensory pleasure or to get rid of some unpleasant conditions that you're experiencing. So you're at ease with these conditions. You begin to learn to be at ease with pain, at ease with restlessness, with mental anguish, and so forth. And then you find that the mind will be very clear, very bright, and very calm. End quote. So in practice, rather than trying to run away from a desire or get lost in the fantasy of fulfilling the desire, consider just tracking the feeling of the desire itself until it fades. And I should be clear here, what I mean is to follow or track the conditional relationship to the desire. That is, track the feeling, the very feeling, the, the compulsive feeling that the desire must be fulfilled in order to feel happy, content, etc. Stay with the feeling that the desire needs to be achieved, or the de- that the desire needs to be acted upon. And when that feeling of compulsive needs to be acted upon, when that feeling passes, which it will, simply notice what is revealed in the passing. The poet William Blake said it beautifully. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So instead of getting hooked by each and every craving, we can actually train ourselves to kiss the tana as it arises, crests, and falls away, revealing a calmness and peace that isn't dependent on conditions. And it's the fading away of the seeking gratification in things, seeking gratification in things, pleasant sounds, sights, feelings, thoughts, etc., and staying present enough to see the seeking of gratification fade, at this point, knowledge and vision of a saner, freer, calmer strategy for peace reveals itself. I'm sure I'll have more to say about this theme in a subsequent solo cast, but for now, I'd like to keep my suggestions very simple. Number one, in your practice, take inventory of your common triggers. Number two, Pick just one, and for a week or two, really endeavor to become the world's greatest expert on how craving arises, crests, and ceases with relationship to this specific trigger. Number three, notice what it's like when the craving ceases, even, and this is important, notice what it's like when the craving ceases, even when the trigger remains. pause the discussion of this topic there for now. I hope this solo cast supports your practice and teaching. And in case you missed the interview with Dr. Judson Brewer, please take some time and have a listen to that. In the show notes, I've left a link to Dr. Judd's book, as well as to an article Dr. Judd co-wrote with Jake Davis and Joseph Goldstein. This article contains much of the thesis that's explored in Judd's book, The Craving Mind. I've also included links to upcoming online modules, retreats with Terry and me, in the event that you might be interested in studying with us. 
And in the next episode, I'll release my conversation with Dr. Richard Schwartz. Richard is the founder of a psychotherapeutic model called Internal Family Systems. And among many other things, we explore how this psychotherapeutic model complements and supports a spiritual practice. So I look forward to sharing that episode with you very much. Until next time, may we all continue to establish a gentle connection with ourselves and with our world. May that connection support a deepening of clarity and understanding about ourselves and our world. And may connection and clarity support the ongoing development of kindness, compassion, and wisdom for ourselves and for all beings. Thank you for your attention.